Hello, welcome to Q&A number five. Uh, it's been about nine months since I've done one of these. Uh, obviously things have been very busy, but I finally found the time to do one and I've got a lot of questions from you guys and from listeners and from subscribers, um, which, which you know, I'm happy to answer. So uh, I'm going to answer all these questions and then I will discuss sort of very briefly the future of the podcast, which is, of course, good. Things are just growing at a, you know, at a great rate. Firstly, what, uh, sorry, for you, what, is the link between accelerationism and occultism. I wonder if there is a logical thought process of you to drift from accelerationism to occultism or if it's just two distinct interests you developed distinctively. There is a, a direct link between these two. Um, occultism, occult simply means hidden. And if you think about accelerationism and the idea of accelerating into something, we, uh, you know, accelerationists are trying to understand what it is we are accelerating into. And in a sense, that is occluded as well. Both are connected by uh, occlusion of trying to find something which is hidden behind some sort of veil. Um, there is a direct connection you could draw here, perhaps with someone like Schopenhauer. So, for instance, as I see it, the root of accelerationism in terms of form, can be understood from Kant, uh, especially Landian Kantianism, Kantianism, and Kant moving through to Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer then speaks of the veil of Maya. So if you wanted to somehow form a, a link between the two, Schopenhauer is probably your go-to. Um, there is, you know, the, the link really is just to do with the new mena. So, you know, and what it is that is hidden from our representation of the world, our representation of the world. Now, in terms of whether or not uh, occultism, what occultists are dealing with in terms of Numenor and the outside, in terms of, say, Baphomet or demons and angels and this kind of thing, and whether or not that's the same thing accelerationists are dealing with in terms of what's coming in from the future, uh, I think that would be a bit of a stretch on, on the aesthetic level, but I think in form that's very much the same thing. Uh, I think this... so. Also favourite dish. I'm fairly sure that this person sent me that. So this is the same person. I've removed the names of who people who sent me this. So uh, my favourite dish is pasta e agliolio, which is simply pasta, garlic and oil. Uh, but you normally would put... Um, so it's basically... I, do, I make it with linguine. So you boil up the linguine and then a whole cup of really good olive oil. A whole bulb of garlic cut really fine. You sort of fry that. Then you put that in with the linguine mix it all around and then you do a handful of chopped parsley and maybe some parmesan on top it's absolutely beautiful um but i don't have it very much because i don't it's it's just ridiculous the kind of thing that's ridiculously good and i don't want to ruin it by eating it too much but other than that um i enjoy pretty much every type of food i have to be fairly careful because i do um I eat a lot i mean if you wanted other favorite dishes steak and eggs of course <laughs> um thai green curry liver and onions with mashed potato. Yeah, you know, it's a bit all over the place, really. Um, but if I had to pick a cuisine as well, it would be Italian. Um, so, yeah. Uh, next question. Should one bother doing philosophy in university now, or is it a lost career where not only your job prospects are low, but also you can just learn it by yourself? This is an interesting question. Um, I never went into either of my degrees the bachelor's being fine art and the master's being continental philosophy with a plan to be honest which is probably what why how most people go into um liberal arts degrees and what what i mean by that is i um never particularly wanted to be anything i enjoyed making art from a young age and i then i that 
gradually evolved more into the theory of things and then I just simply enjoyed continent like the philosophy of the continentals and I found that course and it I found it fit and I just wanted to study it uh, more as a as something to do as a rigorous study of that thing now yeah it's a good question I mean I would emphasize the in the question here should one bother doing philosophy in university now uh you know previously I think it would have its merits because now in the the, the time before the internet uh, knowledge was far more fragmented and hard to get a hold of and uh, you know uh, uh, being uh, having access to great scholars living people who are great scholars would be a true uh, unique merit to do it whereas now i mean whereas now i would say that if you're simply if the reason you want to study philosophy in university is simply because you enjoy studying philosophy and you just enjoy philosophy just study online alongside something else which is going to earn you a bit more money uh that might be overly pragmatic for some people if you're going into philosophy for the for to become a lecturer to to do something philosophically um try work out fairly early on exactly what it is you want to do because there's a lot of fashions in the university and unfortunately if you don't fit those you're not really going to get a job as a lecturer and it's extremely competitive for not that amazing pay and also a lot of the things I'm thinking of Justin Murphy here with indie thinkers indie thinkers uh, there is a lot of people who are creating options for academics outside of the academy to make make money via courses now which is equivalent if not more of what's being made in the academy uh, because there's a realization now that a lot of people just enjoy philosophy and enjoy just studying it generally so there is a big there is sort of this this uh, the fact that the philosophy market is sort of booming at the moment online, it seems. Uh, and I'm not sure that the academy in abstract is really going to help you with that. Uh, it's a bit dated in times, but this isn't a comment on the tutors or the people of the academy, uh, because I think they're all in sort of agreement that it's controlled largely by fashions and, and a lot of dated uh, ideas, unfortunately. Um, the short answer of that is basically you've probably answered your own question right you're saying is it a lost career uh, with no job prospects well if that's already what you're thinking and that if that's what you're seeing where you are then i think it would be a silly idea to do it basically do it uh, either do it in the understanding that you're just doing it out of the passion and you want to work under that tutor or work within that specialty um uh, and it's this is different in the uk because the grants here you know the me studying that at postgraduate level isn't going to hamper my life because it's not a proper debt uh, in the UK whereas it might be in other places uh, so basically understand what your end game is well before you start the course if you definitely want to become a lecturer go ahead and do it if you don't really know why you're doing it I then begin to question it and see if you can just get that same enjoyment online um, yeah what is your opinion currently on nihilism? Ligotti and others' work. Would you ever consider yourself a nihilist, even in the Schopenhauer sense of passive nihilism? Okay, firstly, what is my opinion currently on nihilism? What is my opinion of nihilism? Uh, I'm not entirely sure it can be a thing, to be honest. It's very difficult to explain why that is. Uh, the the recent, the, the soon-to-be-released interview, which I believe is the one next week, actually, I should yeah I'll release 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 this this week and it should be next week anyway it'll be the interview with Corey Anton and we discuss nihilism and in his book uh, how be how non being haunts being he gets very close pretty much spot on actually to something I've thought about nihilism the idea of nihilism for a long time which is that hidden in nihilism you know the idea that everything is meaningless nothing has any meaning 
um, is itself the implicit understanding that, that it should have been meaning and that therefore there is some meaning tangentially caught up in all of this, right? So what what I mean by that is, well, all this, this nihilist rhetoric, whether it is passive as in, oh, everything, nothing has meaning, that's so bad and you just end up slinking into it and being drawn into it or whether it's active as in everything, nothing has meaning, therefore I can just, you know, I can do what I want and create and it's great in that Nietzschean active sense. Um, both of these ride on the idea that a, a sort of begrudging human perspective of like, as if there should have been meaning for us, if you see what I mean. So the idea that, oh no, the universe, there's no meaning in the universe. Well, why did you assume that there would be? And surely from that assumption, we can begin to understand that there seems to be something more to all of this than such rhetoric would say. Basically, it's, you know, it's a very lazy argument on my position as a philosopher. Uh, I don't have time for nihilism anymore because I'm more, you know, I'm spending more of my time and energy seeking out the alternative to it. It's very easy to just fall into that and say, well, nothing has any meaning and, and get into that what I call bleaker than thou thought. Uh, and I think the same is does apply. You ask what I think of uh, Lagotti and others' work. Um, others I wouldn't actually know who to include in there. Many people would say Emil Choron. I wouldn't include Choron in there. Uh, but if we take Lagotti, Lagotti is a great, uh, you know, a Lovecraftian writer who is then brought out from this a really, uh, you know, one of the more articulate forms of nihilism now. And then there is also, of course, Lagotti's uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which is this now sort of infamous uh, current contemporary text on nihilism. Um, I read it almost like a Hulenbeck novel. It's just this defeatist pap written by someone who I find possibly got a raw deal in life and, and is just a, it's quite a lot of projection. Uh, and I find, to be honest, and I mean, I'm not going to avoid the Gajifian bias here for myself, but I find a lot of those texts, and this is perhaps where the difference for me for Chiron comes in, is I don't think Chiron is indulging in those what we might consider nihilist thoughts. He's doing something with them and finding a way to sort of react and resist from them. Whereas in Lugotti and others, I find a complete indulgence, which ultimately I find very pathetic. Um, it's very, very easy to simply draw the line under nihilism and say that's how things are. And then that also basically justifies and self-justifies one, an indulgence in a ton of different habits and emotions which are just negative and not needed. And also it can justify some really horrible things in the way you deal with other people and you project yourself onto life. Um, so would I ever consider myself a nihilist? No. Uh, the Schopenhauer sense of passive nihilist? No. Uh, I don't consider myself a nihilist. Uh, not at all. Um, no. Ernest question. What kind of jobs are philosophy grads being grads being hired for in my view uh well you can look at the sort of the statistics for this the majority of philosophy graduates are being hired for marketing jobs marketing copywriting sort of random business admin jobs ultimately the things where you can sell your analytical thought skills but ultimately we both know that well we, we sorry both we all know that really what those companies are looking for they just see the degree and they see someone who is relatively competent and probably will be fine in their marketing department uh other than that i don't really know what they're being hired for uh, much like many liberal arts jobs, I think the degree itself is basically this tick that this person is competent, they can see something through and they can be motivated enough to see a degree 
through to the end therefore they're not going to be like they're going to be a fairly good employee this is what a lot of credentials are these days which aren't extremely specific english literature you know etc etc basically liberal arts degrees uh yeah but other than that i wouldn't know perhaps you can clarify further but your openness to a possible eventual life-affirming position after encountering countering nihilism really resonated with me personally i see either remaining open to life affirmation or denying it as one crude way to divide schools of thought even within traditions that otherwise share a lot of formal elements i have experienced material life affirmation and after nihilism and difficult material circumstances at times i am tempted to become polemical about this point but one of the reasons i enjoy your podcast is how it showcases the range of conclusions that can follow deeply examined experience why do you think the mystical hermetic experience contains these apparently opposed positions to life, in particular the value of material life? Why, sorry, I will have to reread that last line. Why do I think the mystical experience contains apparently opposed positions on life, in particular the value of material life? Well, if, if I think I'm understanding you correctly, the value, you know, okay, so the opposition is, the opposition that I at least I can read into this question is that uh, there's that stereotypical assumption that the mystical hermetic experience, um, something above, above, beyond, you know, you focus on what is, be, you know, beyond life, you focus on the astral body, the spiritual plane, in the Kajifian workers, the Kezjan body, uh, the soul, etc., etc., and that's your primary focus. And then in opposition to that is would be, well, why is there the value in the material life? And uh, not all hermetic and mystical, quote-unquote, mystical experience is and schools and thought systems do have a value on the material life. I mean, my brief foray in Neoplatonism, there's there's plotinus himself you know he hates material life but but there's also there's always an interesting idea to be had there and i mean avoiding the ones where it's clear that they have this sort of tenuous relationship where they just want to try and avoid it all the time and feel it's some sort of like you're trapped in some skin vessel which now is a position i just don't have any sympathy for really people get mysticism wrong in the sense that they think it's like head in the clouds all the time and that you're beyond life and really most mystical schools, as I can understand them, are all about a greater attention in life uh, and a feet firmer on the floor. Most people aren't, most people don't have their heads on their shoulders. Uh, and, and to think that a mystical position is about having your head in the clouds, in fact, most of the time it's the opposite. And then from that, you could develop something where you can go beyond or you, you can see deeper into life or something like this. But f at first, for most of these experiences, is an understanding of the value of the material world, whether it be a practice where you're sensing your body, uh, a practice of asceticism where you get a deeper connection to the body. Most mystical schools begin with bodily practices for that very reason, that you've avoided the reality in front of you, the worldly reality where you have your feet firmly on the floor for most of your life. So you have to begin, most mystical schools begin from, you don't know what reality is and we need to take you back to basics and you need to understand you know what reality is before you you know you're thinking you're going to go into this some mystical magical fantasy world but actually the opposite is true you're going to be, your feet are going to be more firmly placed in the real world that's the whole point uh so yeah that's 
you know, but it, 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 your mileage may vary because different schools have different emphases. So, you know, uh, I can't comment. I, it's a very general comment that I made there. Next question. What are my thoughts on German idealism? You mentioned that you were very influenced by Kant. What do you think of Fichte, especially since he attempts to unify a complete Kant system and leading it to absolute idealism? I've spent very, very little time with Fichte. Very little time. Um, so I really shouldn't comment there. It would be a lie for me to comment there. Uh, Schopenhauer, fantastic. But as as I see it, uh, German idealism splits off a lot, but the two main currents that you probably should keep an eye on is Schopenhauer and Hegel. And they're the two divides from Kant, which I think are of the real importance. Uh, I, you know, Fichtians, forgive me, um, but I just that it it hasn't it hasn't spread its wings in the history of philosophy, unfortunately. And I'm more of the Schopenhauerian side, um, but not in the nihilistic sense as come earlier. But yeah, um, but what are my thoughts on German idealism? Uh, it is sort of a tough question because a lot happens in that very short space of time, and there's a lot of uh, you know to, to to really comment on that. There's a lot of writers who are overlooked: um, Jakob Sigismund Beck, Jacobi. Um, Reinhold um, and many others um, but basically all inspired and Im influenced by Kant uh, and you know super controversial comment which originally comes from Nick Land but I agree with it which is sort of like can that whole tradition be subsumed back into Kant in a way did anyone truly uh, you know unify the system and actually you know complete that system in a way I don't see that as happening um, not at all. I think that people sort of concluded it in their own way. I mean, Schopenhauer, especially, you know, he he did the world as well as representations of two volumes, and he said, yeah, "This is my system." And and I I think if you're in agreement with these things, then you you could have a finished system of German idealism. But I think for the the real Kantians, I don't think that's ever happened. And I'm not sure it ever will. I mean, Land, of course, is stating that it happens with Bitcoin, but and, and that's certainly very interesting. I've done lectures on it, but. Um, whether or not it's true, we don't know. But what are my general thoughts on German idealism? Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's where continental philosophy... That's where philosophy, for me, starts. I mean, ultimately, in your life, you're going to have to make a choice about what you learn really, really well. You know, we don't have that much time in life, and, you know, you might be able to master some things in life. Um, so, ultimately, you, you do make a choice. Um, and no one can know all of philosophy. And if you're starting from the classics, you have a lot to understand before you get to Kant. So when I say philosophy for me is Kant onwards, that is the era that I've chosen to really study in philosophy. With that said, I've uh, to a degree, uh, I'm moving away from continental philosophy in a certain sense, but maybe I'll get to that in some other chat. I don't know, it's not something I'll get into now. Um, what are my thoughts on the philosophy of food or what prompted my reading interview with Nicola Perullo? Uh, philosophy of food is, in the Anglophone world, extremely overlooked. You're looking at probably about 20 books, which isn't, you know, it sounds like a fair few, but it really isn't many in terms of a whole um, subsection of philosophy. Uh, basically, I'm very sympathetic to it, both from the Gajifian standpoint and a personal standpoint, in that I do enjoy food, but I enjoy it as an experiential thing, and I'm sympath very sympathetic to Sayre, and I enjoy Sayre's work, and from that... Basically, I'm I'm. I often think about the hierarchy of the senses in the 
in the way of we have had this predominant relationship with vision, which of course is, is justified in a way because that's the majority of representational experience. But I think in terms of, you know, jumping back to that mystical experience, what what is it of other senses which can allow us to open up something deeper in the world? So that um, is simply a great book and Prulo is, is a great writer. Um, what are my thoughts on Bataille and limited experiences? Bataille himself is someone I veer away from. I think he's um, a dark individual uh, and not someone you want to spend that much time with. I, you know, back to that nihilistic thing. He's someone who can make life like dirty and dark, and it's just, you know, after reading after reading his biography, it's not really someone for me anymore. I really really enjoyed Land's book on Bataille, but I think it's more of a warning in a way about going deep into Bataille. You know, where's his answers? What are his answers? And if they, if what I think are his answers are his answers then I don't really want anything to do with them. That's not a truth that I agree. Uh, like, I, I don't, I just don't see much objectiveness there. It seems to be this subject, subjective sort of theatre. Uh, and limited experiences, I haven't read Bataille's book on limited experiences. I've read Visions of Excess, I've read the biography, I've read the general economy work. Um, I've read a few of his novels. Um, so that's where my comments are coming from. I really want to read the book on limited experiences, but like I said, I try limit my exposure to writers like that because you it's just not how i it's not the impressions that i want go you know to be consuming every day much like i you know there's probably the same reason i veered away from Deleuze and Guattari in recent months and almost like year um is because you know knowing all that stuff it hasn't benefited me in many ways so i veer away from it in terms of is this i'm just sort of going a bit mad for no reason um yeah. Seeing as I don't believe in free will, do you think we are predestined or does there exist some ability of choice or is it more esoteric, complicated? Well, I'm happy to explain this. Um, free will is is possible. I mean, this is, you know, it's it's no, yeah, everyone will know now, you know, it's been a while that I'm basically finding Gurdjieff was a ton of answers for me. Um, not fully complete. You know, I've got to work on them. That's the point. You can be sceptical in the Kajifian scheme of things and it's it's still all there but in terms of free will it's the the classic story of um you know you could rewrite the story yourself but to think of let's say to think of someone who seeks simply to go buy bread from the store and they live only 100 meters away from the store you know and they're thinking right i'm going to go buy this bread and they're conscious of that fact they're co that's all they're conscious of when they're leaving oh, i've got to go buy this bread for dinner maybe they're conscious of or for lunch maybe they're conscious of like i need to buy bread uh, the fillings and then they're thinking about the sandwich and that's sort of you could draw a line around that and say it's the same conscious thought of bread for lunch and fillings right and then they leave the house and as they're closing the door like they see a something they've left on the floor like an umbrella and then that takes their memory back to a day that they, it was raining at the fair and then they close the door and lock the door and they're thinking about the fair. And then while they're walking along, a bird flies in front of them and they remember that they haven't fed their pet bird at home. Uh, and then a second later, there's a noise of a plane and then they think about the plane and then they think about the fact they need to book plane tickets for this holiday that's coming up. And then they think about, well, is this holiday going to be enjoyable or what about the fuel shortages, blah, blah, blah. And then by the time they've taken this 100 meter walk to the store, their emotions, their intellect, their body has just 
absolutely strewn their attention all over the place. And these are the people. This is everyone's reality, and this is all the. And these same, these very same people would say that they have free will, even though they are being pulled around constantly by emotional, intellectual, and physical forces, which they had absolutely no choice of whether or not they came in. They just let them in, and then they're just. And that is most people's days. They're just a machine, a cog that's being pulled around by external forces and allowing themselves to be. And many of these would have made them angry, upset, sad. Some would have made them happy. Some would have put them in pain. Some would have made them doubt themselves. Some would have given them a new opinion. And all of a sudden, they had no choice in this matter. And and these people would say they have free will. Um, and I think that's basically just ridiculous. Um, whether or not that means we're predestined. 99% of the time, for 99% of people, yes. Uh, does there exist some ability of choice? Yes, but it comes after a lot of effort. Uh, to even, to truly think about things in that way, it comes after a lot of effort. But to, to, to explain that, I would have to go into the, the whole Gajifian school, including the idea of a three-brained being. But if you want, you know, why that takes effort on, and how to make effort, um, then look up Gurdjieff's theory of uh, the emotional... Um, the emotional, the intellectual, and the instinctive centers. Uh, they're all, look up, type in Gurdjieff, horse, carriage, driver, uh, allegory. And that will help you understand. Um, so, in short, no, I don't believe in free will. I do believe it's possible to have free will, but to get that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of sincerity, importantly, and honesty. Um what is my note taking system like? Pretty sparse. I don't really take many notes. Uh, I generally, if I was to take notes, I would just be putting them aside and they'd probably never be used. If I, I've, over time, I just try to be more attentive with books and things stick and things don't. And I don't try, I've never really done that and I don't try lie to myself about that, at least on casual reading. So when I'm really studying a book, say for instance, a text like Beelzebub's Tales, uh, which I'm basically just studying constantly at the moment, but let's say uh, other complicated texts such as texts of scripture, texts like um, Critique of Pure Reason, Being in Time, I would take notes and usually the best way to really understand these books, and I'm not even joking on this, the books that I've, I believe myself I understand to a, to a more advanced level, I've almost been writing a line for like every three lines you're almost rewriting the book uh in a shortened script which you understand so you know Deleuze and Guattari will take three lines and then you'll go you'll spend some time with it or spend time with a paragraph and you go oh that's what they meant and then I might put that note in the margins and it and it, it sort of solidifies and, and streamlines the process but other than that no I'm not much of a note taker I'm fairly just uh, more of an instinctive if it sticks, it sticks. It's always how I've been. Um, next question. Have I ever watched Terence Malick's films? If so, what did you think of them and their philosophical themes like existentialism, uh, Night of Cups, and Christian theology, Tree of Life? I, the only one I've seen is Tree of Life. Uh, and I remember thinking that's like just outstandingly beautiful. But I, I didn't really know enough to... Un you know, it was one of those films where I'm like, well, there's definitely something deeper going on here. But I don't really know what unfortunately i was fairly ignorant of the as you say the christian theology uh, behind it so i can't really comment all i know i knew terence malick was deep because i know he's translated some heidegger um that doesn't mean of course he's deep not at all but he's clearly a, an intellectual chap um 
but sometimes with those kind of films I can find it a bit forced which is sort of why I enjoy Tarkovsky I mean he's his brilliance is in his simplicity um, and I think he's one you know it's rare that a philosophical film can work sometimes it comes across as quite cheap and almost to the point sometimes where either it goes too far in the pretentious direction and it's almost like that Baju documentary where he started saying like what is a woman and it was like well, what, what does that even mean? Or it can go in the other direction where they're basically spelling out their philosophy, almost like the film Flight, Fight Club, right? Which is like, I don't know, it's so transparent. So th there's a certain line that that it has to balance, um, which Tarkovsky does well. And I, you know, I, I've heard Malick's films are great. So uh, is it The Thin Blue Line, I think is, or Thin Red Line, I, don't know, I can't remember, uh, which I've sort of got on the list to, to work, to watch. Um, I've repeated a question there. Oops. Um, so the next question, a version of the Hermetics question. You can place three of the guests you've had on thus far into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who would you pick? Um, um, Nick Land, John Michael Greer, and Abdul Hakim Murad. Um that would be the three. And I think it would just it would go on for hours between those three. So, you know, you have a as as I understand it, a sort of a, a cult, almost like hyper like weirdly atheological religious thing going on with land. Then you have a druid, pagan arguably, uh, and then you have a traditional Muslim. I think that would be an astounding conversation. And also equally their all their visions of the future differ in such a to such a interesting way that um i think yeah i think that conversation would be astounding but then also there would be for me i would love another conversation with joseph is easy just because i've come a long way since that first conversation about that episode um and it'd be interesting just to have two other sort of good gfians and have a conversation about gurdjieff in there <laughs> um thinkers academics philosophers of the future 30 50 80 years from now what do you think their opinion of the now would be well, um, probably be the opinion of a lot of people who have the opinion of the now now, which many people know to be true, but we want, we still want to avoid, which is that basically we're in an anomaly of both intellectual, academic, and resource abundance, and we've never seen anything like this before, and we never will again, and people maybe not in 30 years but 50 and 80 will be looking back going how did they not see that and and change direction or or you know do anything about it i think that's all it will be i think but but there's an interesting thing that was you know made clear to me the day that in beelzebub's tales gurdjieff says this book will be written uh sorry this book will be read when when there is no electricity uh which i think is a great thing to say and i don't think he means some super down the line you know thousands of years I think he meant fairly soon. Um, and the history, you know, as Greer says, the history of electricity will be basically like its start, but in reverse, and eventually it'll go back to having none. So 80 years, to be honest, it's a really difficult question because 30 years, I think, is that's where we're really going to see the start of a lot of the problems which are definitely coming our way. 50 years, they'll be solidified, and 80 is when they'll be so solidified they will have become a norm. Um 30, I'm not sure you're going to be getting too much philosophy around that time because people are probably going to be struggling for work and things like that. 
50, what are we looking at there? 50. I don't know, maybe then you'll start getting preachers and, and new mystical currents spring up. Uh, maybe people even damning these times for that reason. And then 80 years, back to a sort of basic way of living. That's my thoughts. What influence did Heidegger have on your writing or you in general? He didn't really have a huge influence. I mean, I was, I did enjoy uh, the being towards death aspect. I found the ready to hand and the present at hand a bit useless. Uh, Dasein was a very interesting concept. Um, I didn't like his sort of faux aristocratic attitude towards craftsmanship, just as someone who's come from a joinery trade. And a lot of philosophers who use him go on about that as if it's some badge of honour of authenticity. And it really frustrates me as someone coming from that trade of, uh, not that I was any good at it, but, you know, I worked in that trade for a long time and, you know, making sash windows and doing very fine joinery work. And the idea that it's some almost heroic, authentic deed in sense of radical tradition against this ensuing nihilistic wave which Heidegger spent his career talking about I think is absolutely ridiculous and it basically shows uh, really and not to get too left wing about it because you know I'm not but it shows this weird absence of Heidegger being able to really relate to anyone outside of his own little bubble um, I've gone off Heidegger of late and I, I even when I read him uh, I never really understood that he was talking about some nihilistic thing. And he, the concepts which could have been very helpful, he never really outlined. Authenticity was one. Uh, and maybe he was maybe he was one of the first philosophers that made me realise that a lot of Continentals are chatting crap. Basically because he's using these words and not really knowing why. It's like, oh, authenticity. And if you don't then go on to explain it, well, what justification do you have to even use the word? Um, so, yeah, whereas mystics would have the spine to at least define things. Um, so, yeah. Uh, how is the floor sleeping going? No, I'll be honest. <laughs> I slept on the floor for maybe a week to two weeks. Um, and it helped, but then I've basically just got a firm, very firm mattress now. But I just found that when I slept on a very soft mattress, even when those mattress toppers, I just have awful sleep. So I'm just someone who just needs basically a super, super firm mattress. Um, but I would recommend floor sleeping for other things just for like, it's a very clear way of realizing what you consider normal and plenty of cultures still do it. Um, in the East, many people sleep on, not directly onto the floor, but they'll sleep on a very thin mat. Um, so it's not uncommon. Would I ever do a Hans George Gadamer episode? I definitely would, but because he's, there's many philosophers out there who I can do the research for relatively quickly, especially if we're just talking about a text or or an idea, or a single book, but Gadamer, uh, is it Truth and Method, Method. Um, that's going to take a lot of research, uh, so I would happily do one, but it would take some time, unless someone wrote, you know, like a secondary book on Gadamer, which I could possibly read, or something like that, but I do like to really know what I'm talking about before I go into a discussion with someone about it, um, so yeah, open to it, but it would take some time to do the research. And if someone could point me in the right direction for someone, then I'm more than happy to do it. Um, but that is the questions I'm trying to think. Um, so about the, just the, the future of the podcast, like it's just growing at a great rate. Of course, I'm super, super thankful for 
you know every listener every subscriber um you guys are the best you guys are great um what's new um should be doing a few more lectures soon i've got a couple of ludwig klager's lectures written out um and ready to basically for me to read and present and one of these will be on youtube and one will be for patrons then i've got some gurdjieff lectures on his basic ideas very short ones which these will be for patrons only uh, and they'll but they'll also be accessible to people who are joining up for the hermetics work group the gurdjieff work group that we're doing so i would like to just very quickly talk about that on monday nights at 6 p.m bst though that time may change not sure about the day but it might be a little bit later soon so we can accommodate more people but at the moment uh, monday nights at 6 p.m bst uk time uh, we read around 10 to 20 pages of beelzebub's tales to his grandson and then we discuss it and of course this you know it's a bit daunting for some people because uh, it's a very daunting text but there are if you just ask in the discord or ask me there are resources um for uh you know getting to grips with it and it is a text i think you can jump into with us and then ask any questions and new newcomer questions are extremely welcome but this is is now sort of fragmenting off into a work group because people want to take the do the effort make the effort and take the kajif stuff seriously so uh, i'm going to create a web well i'm slowly creating a website for that and there's going to be resources to help people out there so anyone who wants to be you know included in that or is interested in that um let me know either by contacting me on twitter or all the places that it is um and yeah so that's one thing we're doing uh what else probably we'll try figure out a new reading group for a text soon um but as to what it'll be i don't know yet um alongside that there's just got to finish editing it, but soon Hermetics will be publishing Carl Duprell's The Philosophy of Mysticism in paperback uh, with an introduction by Rico Sneller. And then me and Rico, I imagine, will be doing some other public, like promoting that and stuff on here. So that'll be interesting. Other than that, it's just basically constant with interviews. And I always emphasize, you know, if there's anyone you want me to chat to, a topic you want me to cover, contact me, comment, or things like that. And also, you know emphasize sharing it by word of mouth is always the best way um i want listeners who are interested i'm not interested in millions of listeners uh even though the podcast is doing extremely well in that regard you know it is a big following now uh i'm interested in people who are genuinely interested in the topics and uh you know i'd like to i'd like to sort of always keep it that way um it's always been a fairly tight-knit community of very nice people um the online discussions we have always stay civil even you know people from all sides of the spectrum all different ideas um not once have i seen within hermetic circles uh, a big argument or ad hominem or things like that so it's a really nice community and i always urge people to get involved um but other than that yeah uh i'm sure i'll do another one of these within a few months and until then keep on listening like subscribe all that lovely stuff uh, and support if you want to the links are all about the place and yeah, just generally, thanks all for listening uh, and listening to the podcast and yeah, keep doing so. Thanks very much.